Okay, last week we talked about um, what is the Trinity, and I told you that this week we are going to continue by discussing why all of that truth matters to you, and that's kind of the goal of today, um, just to talk about why the Trinity matters. I have a slideshow, but we'll see if it works. Um, I did I did include another Connell and Donald video, um, but uh, it really has nothing to do with the Trinity. It's just a lot of fun, really. So the, the goal is uh, to... To the great chagrin of our choir members, after I'm done, maybe we'll watch it. It's, it's about uh, why JWs are wrong. It's really funny. I also watched another one last night that had me laughing out loud. Um, it was why Mormons are going to hell in 40 seconds, but, uh, but that's not today. So there you go. Um, but before we begin and talk about why the Trinity matters, I want to ask you a question. And, and, and the question is, has, have you ever asked a question? And have you ever asked uh, specific kinds of questions? Maybe questions that you don't ever say out loud, but they're questions in the back of your head. Or maybe you've talked to your parents about them. They're, they're questions about um, big, big picture things that just confuse you. Like, what was God doing for eternity before creation? And, and why did God choose to create in the beginning? Why why create everything and have all of these problems? Was he bored? Was he lonely? Uh, did he have nothing better to do with his time? Why did God create? Or maybe you ask another question, a little different kind of question, but it has to do with the gospel. How do I know um, if God really loves me? I, I, I think this is a question students are often asking. How do I have true assurance of my salvation? How do I know of God's love? How can I be assured of that? Or another question, and, and, and I'll show you how these all connect in a second, but thinking about eternity, what will I do for all eternity? If I'm going to live forever, what kind of an existence will that be? Will that be boring? Will I get bored? I, I get bored um, after two and a half months of summer vacation. What am I going to do in a perfected state? It, I just don't understand um, how that will be wonderful. It sounds monotonous, maybe, perhaps. And, and once again, maybe these are questions you've asked. Maybe they're questions you haven't asked, but you have lingering in the back of your head all the time, right? Um, why did God create? How do I know I'm saved? And what will existence be like forever and ever and ever? And I, and I want to try to answer those questions today, but answer them by helping you understand a little bit about the Trinity. Because understanding the Trinity actually helps you understand the answers to those questions that you really are interested about. And your view of God actually will shape how you answer those questions. That's really, really quite exciting to me. These, these are big questions that I know you are asking. Basically, my, my basic point today is that your view of God and God, as a triune God, will transform your view of creation, redemption, or salvation, and then eternity, eternity. Your view of God, especially if your God is a triune God, will transform your view of creation, redemption, and eternity. That is the, the basic point. Uh, but before we get to all of that, 
Slideshow's not working. That's okay, though. Just a little bit of review. You're all crying because of that video. Uh, just a little bit of review. Remember, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, the truth about our God being three in one, is not something that we have just concocted. It's not just something that theologians have just kind of thrown together because they had nothing better to do. It's not just a bunch of monks in a cave somewhere saying, you know it would be really cool? If we took this one God and, and made him three in one, that would be really fun. This is a doctrine that is from Revelation. And I talked about this last week, right? I tried to prove to you that this is actually something that you must conclude when you examine all of the truth of Scripture. Remember we talked about how the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Um, the Father is not the Spirit, the Father is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. These are all distinguished from one another in Scripture. And we also see that there is only one God. These are the truths that we see in Scripture. And this is why church councils and confessions and church doctrinal statements have basically said uh, there is a trinity in the one God. This is the Athanasian Creed. Once again, remember that creepy guy, um, picture of the really creepy guy last week, and I had this Athanasian Creed, and I was reading it to you. We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is distinct, a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, and the glory equal, and the majesty co-eternal. It's one God, one essence, one divine nature, not just three gods, once again, we could you know flip over the board. Remember all those those poor ways to think about God. We we don't say that God is. Uh, oh, I got to do it like this. Sorry, sorry about that. <clears throat> we don't want to fall into the trap. Remember this of modalism that there's just one God that likes to put on different hats. Sometimes He's the Father. Sometimes He's the Son. And sometimes He's the Holy Spirit a triangle God, right? Um, Arianism says God created the Son. There's one God, but then he created the Son. That's wrong. Tritheism, saying there's three gods, is, is actually dividing the essence. And that's similar to partialism, right? Part of God is the Father, part of God is the Son, and part of God is the Holy Spirit. Those are all wrong ways to think of God because ultimately, to one extent or another, if you hold to one of these views... Um, the Son or the Father or the Spirit are not totally God. We have to say that the Father is totally God and the Son is totally God, and at the same time the Spirit is totally God, yet there is, they're, they're distinguished from another. That, that's a really hard way to review maybe to some of you, but you guys remember, right? Oh, there we are. There we go. Boom. Um, but, and just to, just to show you that this isn't just some doctrinal thing in the past, move through the slides a little bit. Let's get to Athanasius. It's frozen. All right. Just to help you know that this isn't just some old thing, our church's doctrinal statement, I pulled up. Thank you. I only pressed it twice. All right. This is our church's doctrinal statement. It says this. That was a spoiler. Uh, can I touch it? 
There's Athanasius, really creepy, probably didn't look like this. This is more a representation of the artist that drew him than Athanasius himself. And by the way, Athanasius probably didn't write the Athanasian Creed, but that's another day, a story for another day. Um, but this is Grace Bible Church's doctrinal statement. Notice the language used here, and notice how it's rooted in Scripture. Once again, doctrinal statements are trying to articulate the truth of Scripture. We teach that there is but one living and true God, an infinite and all-knowing spirit, perfect in all of his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. Once again, one God existing eternally in three persons, and each member of these persons is deserving of our total worship and our total obedience. Um, but let's, let's turn now just... Just real quick to the, the purpose kind of of our, of our study. How does a triune God matter? How does that make a difference to you? And once again, I want to think of three words. So first off, creation. Then secondly, we'll talk about the triune God and salvation. And then we'll talk about the triune God and eternity. But first off, let's go with the triune God and creation. How does believing in a triune God matter? make a huge difference and transform our understanding of creation. Um, I watched a space movie this last week, and it reminded me of an experience I always have when I watch any space movie, besides Star Wars, of course. But every time I watch a space movie, that being you know, a movie where there's astronauts going away from Earth, and they're on an, an exploring mission or something like that, they all are terrifying to me, right? I, I actually get very fearful of space watching these space movies, and yet I'm intrigued by them all at the same time. But space movies always make me, make me very, very thankful and grateful for two things. And they probably do this to you as well, right? They make me thankful for air, right? Air is a precious thing out in space. And I just, after I'm done watching a space movie, I just go outside and breathe for a while. <sighs> Thank goodness I'm not in space right now. But they also make me very thankful for other people, right? There's, there's nothing like being in space, even if we are with other people in space, uh, that makes you feel more alone. I just feel like that is a very lonely existence, right? You, you always see that picture of the astronaut looking out the portal and looking back at Earth, and he just feels so lonely, right? I wish I was with other people on Earth, mainly because of the air factor. But yes, people as well are valuable to me. We are naturally very relational creatures, and we miss people. We, we, we like the security of being with other people. At least, that's how I feel when I'm watching space movies. I feel utterly alone with the astronauts. But this brings up a question, right? What was God doing before creation? When God was away from our blessed planet of air and humans, right? Was he lonely? Was he bored out there in you know, nothingness? Was he looking for slaves to control? Matter of fact, there is, a, there is an ancient god, a Babylonian god, Marduk. He is the chief Babylonian gods among the Babylonian uh, pantheon. And in the Babylonian creation account, um, it says that he created mankind so that the gods would have slaves. Right? Is that why God creates people so that he can have slaves? 
Uh, we could think about another religion, uh, Islam. Why does Allah create? Allah creates people, humanity, so that they will worship him. And, and of course, Islam is very careful to clarify that, they, that Allah does not create out of personal need because he needs worship. No, he is a ultimately loving God who gives people the opportunity to worship him. But there is a problem, perhaps, if you think about it long enough. Um, uh, Islam is a, uh, a very strict monotheistic religion. Allah is one God and one God alone. Do not say three. Remember that? Do not say three in Islam. There is only one God. He was alone and he decided to create just out of his own desire and his own will. But there's, there's, there's a question here. One of the 99 names for Allah is actually the loving one. He is the ultimate loving uh, God. And this is an argument that Michael Reeves makes in his book on the Trinity. But he says, if, if Allah was at any point alone in existence, there is a, a, ten, a tension to be loving. Does he need a creation in order to be who he is. He, he can't be loving if he is all alone, in other words. He needs creation to be who he is. Now, you could, you could talk about it all back and forth and things like that, but just think about that, right? Allah needs creation in order to be what he is, loving. But who is our God in the Bible? Does he need us? Is he dependent on us? Does he require humanity to be who he is? No, especially not if he is a triune God, a God who is one God who is eternally existent in three persons. Or to say it like we said it last week, God, our God, enjoys and has enjoyed for, from all eternity perfect, infinite happiness within himself. He has enjoyed perfect love in himself. He has enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion with himself. He did not create out of loneliness, out of boredom, out of need. He was completely sufficient in himself and to himself. In, in seminary, I always had a, the, a theo professor that always said, he is, he is who he is first to himself. And that just shows that he is beyond need, right? And this is what we see in Genesis 1. 1, we see the assumption of God just existing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's existence is assumed. This is not God's origin story. This is our origin story, but it comes from an infinitely sufficient, powerful, mighty God. And then we see hints at the triune nature of our God as far as close as Genesis 1.26. Remember that? God created man in his own image, and he said, he used the words we and us, let us make man in our image. And that, once again, is a hint at God's triune nature. But it isn't until the New Testament that we really get an expression or an explanation of who God is as a triune God. I want you to turn with me to John 17. John 17. God is, as, as, as we can make a point, right, God is seen to be triune in the Old Testament, but his triune nature isn't explained until we get to the New Testament, at least not explained as clearly as we do in the New Testament. Once again, John, just, just to kind of set up John 17, John 1, 1, 
introduces Jesus, the Son, the Word of God, this way. Uh, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, that's referring to Jesus, the Son of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There you go. You have a, a statement of the Word's divinity. The Word was God. But notice also what John says there, the Word was with God. Just, just like we see in Genesis 1-1, we see the Word and God and the Spirit all creating together for sure. But, but notice once again, the Word is assumed to have eternal existence with God from all eternity. The Word, Jesus himself. But what does it mean to be with God? What does that mean? It's implying this eternal existence with God. And, and, I, and I want to show you in John 17 how John, the writer, further clarifies and explains what it means to be with God. Jesus, the word, is with God from all eternity. But what does that mean to be with God? Notice John 17, verse Five, Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. When you're, when you're in the Bible and you're trying to figure out like a phrase that an author is using, if you can find that phrase elsewhere in the book, man, it's really helpful, isn't it? It kind of helps you understand what's going on. What is Jesus saying? It wasn't just that he was with God, but this with God quality of Jesus was sharing the glory of God. See that? with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The word Jesus shared in God's glory. Now you say, oh, okay. Is that a big deal? Yeah, that's a really big deal. That's a statement of Jesus' equality with God and divinity. For example, the Bible doesn't just throw around sharing the glory of God lightly. Right? You could look up this verse, write it down, Isaiah 42, 8. It says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. When God gives his glory, that is, that is giving his praise to images. God does not share his glory ever. Or how about look over at John 17, 24. Since we're here, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me uh, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice also this glory that Jesus has with the Father is out of a loving relationship that he also has with the Father. The, the two are interacting with each other in love. It is a loving relationship. There is this eternal um, begetting the Father gives, and there's this eternally begotten nature of the Son. This is, this is kind of how theologians describe kind of the 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 relationship within the the trinity the father the father is not a statement of like a, authority a superiority but that word father is simply saying that the father has 
begotten or given birth to the Son. That doesn't mean that the Son is coming into creation, but only that the Son shares the same nature as the Father. He is like the Father. That is, that is what the Son is, and the Son is the begotten one. And if you were to turn back to John 1, 18, don't do it, but I'll read it for you. Notice how Jesus is defined as God. Once again, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that is the Son, the only begotten God, the one who comes from the Father, but John 1, 18 says, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Notice Jesus is the revelation, the explanation of this God. And we see this God is eternally in relationship with, uh, within the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? So what does that mean? God didn't create because he was lonely. God didn't create because he was bored. God didn't create because he needed someone to love. He was infinitely uh, enjoying perfect love within the Trinity. The Father and the Son loving one another. No, he created to glorify his name. He created to kind of um, make his eternal love known. Or as one theologian that I was reading this last week said, he created out of the overflow and the abundance of his love. So much love the Father had for the Son that he wanted to magnify his love by creating other objects to know and love him and to be loved by him. Maybe that's a lot to say, but just think about it that way. God was eternally sufficient in himself in relationship within the Trinity, and he created to make his infinite greatness known. That is what the triune God was doing from all eternity. And, and once again, the application to this is stunning, is staggering, staggering. It's life-changing, in fact, right? Because you were created, young one, you were created to know and love this God who is so overflowing in the greatness of his, of his nature that he created you to know him. You were made to know and love this infinitely loving God. Let's look at our next point, the triune God and salvation. The triune God and salvation. Who is the God of the gospel? Who is the God of our good news? Is he a distant and is he a cold God? Is, is he a God that the Son is, is pleading for, trying to turn, trying to twist, trying to beg for the forgiveness of his people before? Is that the kind of God that we have? We saw this in, in Roman Catholicism, right? There is this sense of the, the ascendancy, the, the height, the grandeur, the holiness of God the Father that they don't even feel like they can go to God. They don't even feel like they can go to Jesus. They have to go to Jesus through his mother, Mary. That's the only way we can get a hold of Jesus, and then maybe Jesus will sweet-talk us into heaven. That is essentially what the Roman Catholics believe. They see God as so distant that they do not feel comfortable in approaching him. But how does the idea of the Trinity, as we have seen, actually transform our understanding of the, uh, the salvation we are provided in Jesus? Turn over to another passage. Turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We're going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I want you to look at how the entire uh, Trinity is on display and working for the great joy and blessedness of your salvation. You, you, could, see, you could see here that the, the total message of the, the gospel is actually how the triune God saves sinners. 
That is the good news of the gospel, that, that all of God is saving sinners, not just part of God pleading with another part of God. Let's read Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, remember this is referring to God the Father, just as he chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. Once again, the beloved is the the name for Jesus, who is eternally beloved of God in the triune God, right? And now, notice now, verse 7, now we're going to talk about the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. Now, him, 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 him. You've got to kind of be paying close attention. But do you notice there's a distinction being made between the Father and the Son even there, right? It's God's wisdom making, being made known to us in the grace that we find in him who is Christ. I can talk about it later if you want, just, just to kind of point it out. And then verse 10, for an administration of the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him, in him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end, uh, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him also, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory." Oh, that is a packed sentence about the triune God saving sinners. But just to kind of approach this, just kind of just to help you kind of understand this, just remember all of Ephesians is about the believer's worthy walk. You are to walk in a manner worthy of the great God who has saved you, worthy of the grace that you've been given to be saved. You are to walk worthy. Ephesians 4.1 is the point of Ephesians. You are called to live in a way here on earth that shows forth the praise of him who has saved you. That's all of Ephesians, right? Walk in a manner that praises God for his grace. And, and do you see even that theme coming up here in the beginning of Ephesians, right? God saved you. Why? Repeated, repeated. To the praise of his grace. To the praise of his grace. To the praise of of his grace. And here, Paul can't even get into, can't even really get into his letter without just doing this, this very long, very grand explosion of praise to our God. Matter of fact, this is one sentence, right? You, you turn this into your, your English teacher, also known as your mother, and, and, and she's like, man, you got a lot of semicolons and commas here, not a lot of periods. You got one period. But this is a pretty breathtaking sentence. It has, it has 200 
and two Greek words. It has 32 prepositions. It has 21 uh, genitive phrases. Yeah, you don't want to know any of that. All to say, this is a very massive sentence of praise to our God that Paul opens up the letter with. And notice the repeated refrain to the praise of his glory in verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. But did you notice, have you ever noticed before, that that repeated refrain to the praise of his glory kind of breaks up this this sentence of praise to God and it breaks up the praise between the three members of the Trinity. Notice that. Verse 6, verse 3 to verse 6 is all about God the Father and verse 7 all the way down to verse 12 is about God the Son and verse 13 all the way down to verse 14 Kind of, kind of focuses on God the Holy Spirit. Now, you, you know that God the Father is still involved, God the Son is still involved in all of these things because God is, God is a perfect unity um, and he never does anything outside of himself or without the other members of the Trinity. But, but notice, notice there is kind of a division that Paul wants you to see. The, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to just talk about really quick. Notice really quick the Father's will to set his love on you, and then we'll look at the son's works uh, to to secure the father's love, and then the spirit who wraps us in the father's love. Sorry, W's, you know. Uh, but let's talk about first the father's will. The father wills his love. That is the beginning of the gospel, all found in the will of God the Father. God is not seen here as a distant God just saying, maybe if you work hard enough, if maybe if you kind of crawl your way towards me, I'll take notice of you. No, we see God is the one initiating, beginning the entire saving work um, of the gospel. You, you see that, right? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And notice also, he predestined us to adoption. To adoption, to become sons. God loves his son so much, he wants to create many sons to magnify and reflect his love for the son. It's not because you're a son or a daughter worth having, but you are an instrument to reflect the glory of Christ. And this all begins in the will of God who chooses to love sinners. And notice the emphasis here. This is all according to his will. This is the father who wills to love you. Verse 5, it pleased him for his own praise, to set his will on you. Notice also the Son works the Father's love. Secondly, the, the Son works the Father's love. The Son, Jesus, is seen as an instrument through which uh, the Father's will is executed, you could say. He is the instrument, the means of redemption. He is the conduit through which all of the blessings in Christ or in, in God come. Conduit, you know what that is, kind of like like water channels through a conduit. All this stuff happens through conduits. You need conduits if you want something to get from here to there. Jesus is the conduit that causes all of this blessing that we see in verse 3. Every spiritual blessing comes by being found, where? In Christ. That's what faith does. It puts you in Christ. And all of the spiritual blessings from God come in Christ. But notice, what, is, what does Christ do? What are the works of Christ? He works redemption. This is a phrase that talks about being purchased, purchased um, from slavery. Sometimes it, it means to be released from painful slavery. 
terrible slavery. You could see in Ephesians 2 that our slavery, though, is not to a, a person or to, uh, to like an institution. Our slavery is actually to sin. Our slavery is to this horrible thing called sin. We, we have no freedom outside of sin. We must sin. We are slaves of sin. We are, as it says in Ephesians 2, um, slaves to the way the world works. You are worldly by nature. You are slaves to doing the bidding of the God of this world, the devil. That's what you see. You are slaves to his inspiring will. You are slaves in your own nature as well. Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 verse 3, how our very lusts and our desires show that we are slaves of sin. What is the good news of the gospel? That Christ redeems us, purges us from our slavery. But notice, it's not just to make you free, to do whatever you want. Look at what it says in Ephesians, right? You are redeemed so that you may be enslaved. Ho, ho, good news. But this is a much better master. Notice, you are redeemed to become, verse 14, God's own possession. To have the best master and be redeemed from slavery into a joyful service. That is what redemption is here. And notice, once again, this comes through dealing with your sin. The reason your slavery stinks is because of your sin, and you need to find forgiveness from all of your sin. That's the only way redemption can happen. That's why we see Jesus is uh, giving us redemption, the forgiveness, in verse 7, of our uh, transgressions according to the riches of his grace. And notice all of this, verse 7, comes how? Through his blood. God doesn't just forgive you by choosing to forget all of your sin. God forgives you on the basis that all of his holy, righteous wrath has been completely satisfied in the blood and death of Jesus Christ. That is the work of the Son. And the point is, you find every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of the Son's work. And the Son comes because of the Father's will. And notice also the Spirit wraps us in the Father's love. You see this in verse 13 and 14. Uh, Wraps. uh, And what I'm getting at there is, have you ever heard the expression, you know, maybe it comes from Hollywood or somewhere else, it's a wrap. It's it's a wrap. Not talking about wrapping presents. They're saying the production, the process, the, the thing that we've been trying to accomplish is completed. It's done. It's a wrap in Hollywood, so to speak. The movie is done. We've shot the last scene. We're all done. It's a wrap. And I'm saying what you see here in the Spirit is that the Spirit perfects the work, right? He is the perfecter. He is the completer. He he, he wraps you in security, and he secures the Father's love. Look at what it it says in verse 13. The, The Spirit... The promised one, which is a phrase often used of the Spirit, but notice, you were sealed in Christ through the Spirit. Now, there's two kinds of pictures that could be referred to here with the word sealed. It could mean to secure something, like I'm going to seal, I'm going to seal this area off so nobody can enter it. It could also mean to kind of mark someone with ownership, to, to seal you with, with the ownership that you belong to this individual. And probably what it means here is both. It means you were sealed 
you were secured in the spirit and also secured by the the ownership, the indication that you belong to God the Father. Or or to kind of put it in, in this way, um, you remember John ten twenty nine. It says, "The Father who has given them to me is greater than them all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand." This is a a verse of security, right? The believer has great assurance because I am in Jesus's hand, and around Jesus's hand is God the Father's hand. But think about this: the Spirit provides a triple grip feature, right? You are in the Father's hand, or you're in the the Spirit's hand, and you're held also by the Son's hand, and over all of that is the Father's hand. You have triple assurance of salvation because of the sealing of the Spirit. The Spirit secures you by, by God's ownership. You belong to God, and you cannot be taken out of His hand. And then the Spirit's also referred to as a pledge, as a down payment. This is, this is, more of this is to come. You haven't even begun to see the greatness of your, your God and your salvation yet. Uh, do you see there, though, all to say that the, the Trinity, the Trinity makes the good news of the gospel good news, right? Because you are not saved by, first, the wisdom of your choice. And secondly, you are not ch- saved by the goodness of your works. And thirdly, you are not saved by the security of your strength. You are saved by the will, the work, and the wrapping of the Spirit, the all-powerful God, and the will of God. That is the good news of the gospel. And turn back over to John 17. Just connect this over. Connect this back to what we see in John 17. The Son comes to give this good news, this eternal life, to all that the Father wills to save. We see this in John 17. Notice John 17, verse 2, says this, um, even as you have uh, given him authority, that's Jesus talking about himself, uh, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus has come to give eternal life according to the will of the Father. Eternal life, that is the good news of the gospel. But notice this, this is a a wow statement here. Uh, The the good news of the gospel is is even greater than just security. That is, is, it's even greater than just being triply wrapped in God the Father. The purpose of the gospel is to bring you into a relationship with God. This is amazing. It's, it's more than just security. Verse 26, notice 26 of, of John 17. I have, made name, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice, what is the purpose of the gospel? Not just to secure you, but so that you can... Know the love that the Father has for the Son because you are in the image of the Son. You get to experience the eternally satisfying love of God the Father for God the Son because you are found in the Son. You you are secured to that end so that you can eternally know that, eternally be satisfied by that the outcome of the gospel is the love between the father and the son 
is experienced by you and in you because Jesus and his spirit is in you. That is the good news of the gospel, that you get to know this eternally loving God. And not just in like a secondary way. You get to know him because you are in his son. And you get to experience that. And you get to love the father like the son. What does that look like? It means you delight in the Father, but also in your humanity, in your humility, you obey the Father. And it means you get to love the Son like the Father as well. You get to call him your beloved, as we see in Ephesians 5, even talking about the parallel to marriage. This is the outcome of the gospel. Once again, the, the Trinity transforms the way you see the good news of the gospel, right? It's, it's more than just Security, it's secure communion, secure fellowship. It is the enjoyment of the most precious relationship ever, forever. Once again, God doesn't do this because he needs to love you. He is infinitely sufficient and satisfied in loving himself, but he does this out of the overflow of his love. And you get to experience that in the gospel. Let's turn to the next just category, uh, the triune God and eternity. The triune God and eternity. Back to our original question, but what will we be doing for all eternity? Why should I be excited about eternity? Why should I be like, this is the most important thing I should think about, eternal life? Well, first off, before I answer that question, let me just show my hand and tell you that I do not believe that eternal life is going to be this hyper Overly spiritualized existence. I don't know if any of you are um, far side cartoon fans, but I do not believe that their depiction of eternal life is actually the biblical depiction. And by that I mean two saints, also glorified apparently into angels, um, sitting on a cloud shooting each other with their halos. And so bored out of their mind because there's nothing to do here, just sit on a cloud and strum a harp. I do not believe that that is actually the eternal existence we see in the Bible. And and to go probably beyond where you want to go right now, I think as you see God moving through the progress of salvation and redemption, you see things getting better and better and better. You see the Old Testament, God coming and dwelling with his people. But there is these, there's these weaknesses we see all throughout that. And, and one of those big weaknesses is the weaknesses of the people themselves. They need the new covenant. And then you see the church age, right? We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And then you see the millennial kingdom, the Jesus himself, the king on earth with glorified saints, having the spirit inside of them, enjoying his presence without sin. But still, it's not as good as it will be. In the eternal state, there will be no sin whatsoever. And things just keep getting better and better. And you look at the Bible and you actually see this doesn't mean that God is undoing creation or removing us from creation. It means he is glorifying us to enjoy creation. So I believe that eternal life is actually an eternal life of enjoying creation as we were meant to. And it just gets better and better and better. And, and the existence we have right here on earth is nothing compared to the beauty of creation that we will jo- enjoy in the millennial kingdom. And that is nothing compared to the beauty and, and joy we will have in the eternal state. Yeah, that's a big, long statement. But just so you all know, I do not believe in a hyper-spiritualized existence where we're just spirits bouncing around on clouds. But at the same time, What does believing in the triune God have to teach you about what you are going to be doing for all eternity? 
while you are doing all of those satisfying things like running and eating and digging. I don't know. <laughs> what, what does the triune nature of God have to teach you about what that will be like? Turn to John 17.3. This is eternal life. Oh, here we go. What is eternal? What is the best part about eternal life that's going to define all the other parts? That's going to give all of the other parts their wonderful flavor and sweetness and joy. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is going to be great and abounding eternally with joy and satisfaction for you because you are going to be enjoying the eternal communion of the God who is infinitely wonderful, who enjoys eternal communion in himself perfectly, sufficiently before all time and now shares this joy with you and you get to share this joy with him and not just you but also with all of the saints together enjoying the triune God together. That's what you're going to be doing for all eternity. You are going to be enjoying knowing and loving and worshiping and praising God. The triune God who is infinitely desirable. That transforms how you think about eternity. And I know you have maybe a small mind to think about it now. I have a small mind to think about it now. I can't imagine eternity, but I can imagine that a God who is infinitely good, infinitely wonderful, is worth believing. And that's all the Bible's calling you to do. Believe in God and believe also in Jesus Christ, whom that God has sent. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this this day that we have. And help us, even in this small moment, in in our own weaknesses, help us through your Spirit to praise you, worship you, and enjoy the fellowship that we get to have with you beginning today, forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.